0: Welcome to the Better Angels Podcast, a new way of talking politics. I'm Kieran O'Connor.
1: I'm John Wood Jr.
0: It's Friday, April 5th. We're coming at you live from Culver City. What's good, John? What's going on, Kieran? I'm good, man. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you. We're both back from out of town. Yes, sir. I was in Columbia for a week, but that's uh, for another day.
1: (laughs) For another day, indeed. I just got back from the Global Philanthropy Forum uh, in uh, Redwood City in the Bay Area, and yeah, for another day as well, but... Good to be back in L.A., and it's terrific uh, to be with Mr. Arthur Brooks, the outgoing president of the American Enterprise Institute, noted economist, and the author of Love Your, Anim- Love your Enemies, uh, a powerful phrase, powerful piece of wisdom, and uh, a piece of work that we're looking forward to talking about here. Mr. Brooks, thank you so much for being on the Better Angels podcast.
2: Hi, guys. What a joy to be with you, and thank you for your important work.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And so, you know, at first I thought that this was going to be an easy conversation for us to have because I think that, you know, there's just so much resonance with what it is you talk about and what it is Better Angels works on. I will disclose that I have not read the book as of yet, but I am ordering it today. And the reason I'm so excited to do so, in addition to the fact that we're talking to you here, is because I've been digesting interviews and articles of yours. And uh, I'm a little bit of a latecomer to the Arthur Brooks fan club. Uh, many other people I know have been on that bandwagon for a little while, uh, but you speak with a moral clarity which is just so refreshing and invigorating in the context of today's polarized uh, today's polarized society. So uh, there are many places we could begin. I think one question I would like to ask you is something that maybe you've been asked before, but I'm curious, I'd be curious to see what you say to this. How do you think of love? As a social value, and I'll put just a little preamble on that by saying that Martin Luther King Jr., I can recall Dr. King saying that when he spoke of love, he was not speaking of sentimentality or mere emotional bosh, but rather a transformational power, uh, something that was able to shift the heart of people who are in the moral wrong uh, in a delicate situation Uh, or in a situation of severe social opposition. And I'm wondering Hmm. if you have a conscious sense of how you look at love in a political or a social context, because that's something people have a difficult time wrestling with.
2: Yeah, people have a tendency to think of love as a feeling. And uh, what you're referring to is a sermon that Dr. Martin Luther King gave on the fifth chapter of Matthew, the 44th verse, from which we get, Love Your Enemies. Um, bless those who persecute you. And, and, and he says, it's interesting because Martin Luther King says, Jesus didn't say to like your enemies. Because mm. like, to like, is a, as he puts it, and he's a beautiful preacher, he said, to like, to like is a sentimental something. Mm. He yeah. said, to love is powerful and it's a conscious decision. And to love is the only way that you will ever make a transformation in the soul of another person. And, and basically, it's just a practical matter. As I reflected on this, and I've reflected over the, on this over the last few years since I've been working on this project, Love Your Enemies, it, it occurs to me that we have, we're have we in the most impractical part of American political dialogue that I can remember. Nobody in history has ever been insulted into agreement. <laughs> nobody, nobody in the history of humanity has ever been persuaded by hatred. Mm. You know, that's the that's the practical reality that Martin Luther King was talking about. You have to do something else. And so as I reflected on that, I also thought to myself, well, so what do we need to persuade one another, to transform one another? It's also not civility. Mm. You know, it's funny. If, if I said, you know, Kieran and John, my wife Esther and I are civil to each other. Mm-hmm. You'd say, dude, you guys need counseling.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's not good enough. And tolerance isn't good enough. You know, you guys are out in LA, and, and when you're going east on the, on the I-10, there's a sign for the Museum of Tolerance. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a beautiful thing, you know. But, but I thought about it, and I thought, man, if I told you that my employees at American Enterprise Institute, they tolerate me, you'd say that we have a huge morale problem on our hands. Mm-hmm. None of those things actually gets the job done. The only thing that gets the job done is love, which is a conscious action. Love, to answer your question more directly, is defined by St. Thomas Aquinas as to will the good of the other as other. I mean, think about how heavy that is. To will the good of the other. Only when you decide, when you will, because to say "This this is an act of the will, this is a decision, this is not a feeling, this is not a sentiment, to will the good of another person as another person, only then. Do you have a fighting chance of persuading that person, of lifting up that person, of being united with that person? Nothing else will do. And that's why I called my book, Love Your Enemies.
1: Mm. Now, when you think in terms of polarization today. Uh, I I heard you uh, speaking to uh, Ben Shapiro, and you guys pondered this question as to whether or not polarization is a consequence of contempt in our society or whether or not contempt is a consequence of polarization. It's easy for me to think that polarization and contempt uh, imply an uh, an, an absence of love. But is it, is it simple enough for us to think that if only we were kinder each to each other, uh, that polarization would diminish? Um, or is it more complicated than that? How do you look at the issue of political polarization itself when it seems like love is such a difficult thing to scale beyond our individual interactions? What can we do to depolarize society more broadly in the spirit of love that you're describing?
2: So I asked that question um, when I was doing work on this book, but when it basically, when, and, and again, this book is not anything more or anything less than a, got, a handbook for me to live the rest of my life. I mean, I've dedicated the rest of my life to lifting people up and bringing them together, and I needed a, a manual for myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, of my own self-improvement, which is why I wrote this book. And I, I, will freely admit that that's intensely selfish. <laughs> but in, in so doing that, I, I asked people that I really admire. And as a, as a behavioral social scientist, I, I know a ton of people. It's a great thing about my job. And so I asked a friend of mine named John Gottman, who's been on my, my podcast before. Uh, John Gottman is the world's leading expert in marital reconciliation. Uh he teaches at the University of Washington in Seattle. He runs the Gottman Marriage Laboratory with his wife, wife Julie. And he's brought thousands of couples back together again who are on their on, on their way to divorce court. The guy's a hero. As far as I'm concerned, uh the, the basis of a stable society is strong families, and strong families are based on on, on parents who love each other. And so this guy is a, a patriot. <laughs> and and so I said, John, you know, what is the the biggest predictor of divorce? And he said contempt it's contempt and that is to that is a conviction of the or the expression of the utter worthlessness of another person it's not anger anger is a hot emotion that says i care what you think and i want to change it disgust when you add it in with anger it becomes contempt which is a cold emotion saying either you're worthless or what you say or what you think is worthless and that's that's a, that's a that's a real form of abuse and so he can sit with a couple for just a few minutes and predict with 94% accuracy if they will be divorced within 3 years and the way he does it is by looking at eye-rolling, about derision, sarcasm, uh, dismissal of one person of the other. That's contempt. He says contempt is what destroys love. Mm-hmm. So I thought about that, and I thought, you know, why, why am I asking John Goblin this? Because I want somebody who, who talks about the destruction of relationships, the destruction of love, to help me understand the destruction of our civic culture, of our ability to, to love each other in in American society. And that's exactly the same problem that we have in politics today. So I think that indeed polarization, which has a lot of roots—you uh, know, socioeconomic roots, uh, political roots—it does breed a communications habit of contempt. But it's very endogenous. That the, the, the habit of contempt brings more polarization. If you want an enemy forever, treat somebody with contempt; they will never forget it.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of that uh, Maya Angelou quote, you'll never forget how someone made you feel, even if you forget what they said or did. And Mm. it's interesting that you mentioned marriage counseling, because the original Better Angels Red Blue Workshop was actually designed by a family therapist, uh, Bill Doherty. One, Mm. One thing that strikes me about your approach is, in addition to advocating for the power of love, you're also advocating for the spirit of competition, Mm, and sometimes right. uh, groups that are in the depolarization space, they kind of stay away from competition and they don't really talk about it. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how those two things can not only coexist, but actually empower one another. So long as you're approaching competition with a sense of warm heartedness.
2: Yeah. So I, I I love competition. Um and, and I, I was reflecting on it. Why do I have such adm- admiration for great competitors? Well, I like sports, among other mm, things. And Likewise. And, I mean, no, nothing makes sports bad faster than, you know, lack of competition or, you know, a fixed game or, you know, people who are throwing a match or just people who are not into it. it, it you watch the, you know, the, the all-star games. They're, they're always super boring because, you know, nobody cares. And so they're not really competing. They're just trying to not get hurt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, the same thing is true in, in competition in democratic societies. I mean, democracy, political competition is democracy. There's nothing worse than a, uh, uh, an election with one candidate or where it's fixed. And in competition in the economy, democratic capitalism at, at its best with obviously proper regulation and based on, on good moral standards, that's what lifts people up, gives people opportunity. That's what creates you know, opportunities for, you know, the riffraff in our society, like the three of us (laughs) and our parents and grandparents, you know, if it weren't for competition, you know, the the O'Connor family would still be scratching out potatoes in Ireland three generations ago (laughs) or something. I mean, God bless America and its competitive culture. That's a great thing. And it is just as true in those three realms as it is in in the world of the competition of ideas. You know, we, iron's got to sharpen iron, man. I mean, you, you, you we have to respect each other enough to disagree. The problem is when we can't disagree well. When the disagreement actually doesn't compete properly, it tries to shut down the competition. It's kind of, you know, the way that we talk in politics today is actually not a competition of ideas. It's like the Red Sox trying to blow up the Yankees bus on the way to the game. <laughs> it's just not... I mean, it's just, it's all, it's all weapons of mass destruction rhetorically. I'm going to say that you're stupid and evil as a person. I'm going to use ad hominem techniques. I'm going to try to ruin your reputation. But that's not competing at all. It's not, it's not even trying to compete. And so, I think that we should love each other enough and respect each other enough to actually disagree and do so in a way that's constructive just as we do as we try to do in economics, politics, and sports
1: well as you as you said what you as you said what you said it gave me this this thought where it's true, of course that people look at the marketplace and certainly political conservatives look at the free market and They can quickly see – we can quickly see the value in competition because it spurs creativity. It spurs people onward to serve value in the community. But it does seem like we've gotten to this point to where we cannot see the value in competing ideas. We more look at sort of the existence of opposing points of view as meaning that there's a group of ideas or a group of people that politically speaking at least we need to just sort of exterminate outright. And part of what's been powerful for so many people about the Better Angels workshops for instance is that they've provided people an opportunity to sort of connect on the basis of some shared experience or some shared values, some point of sympathy that also allows them to see the value in the other ideas that that person's differing experience is bringing them to bringing to the table for for them to consider and i'm wondering if there are not salient moments uh, in your life or your experience where somebody of a very different political or philosophical point of view uh said something to you or communicated something to you that was completely out of the range of your your bias maybe but that nevertheless uh contributed something of great value to your perspective. Have there been moments like that in your life that maybe account a little bit for your for your ability to be so open to other points of view now?
2: For sure. And John, like you, I grew up in a family of people who disagreed with my You know, I, I was sort of the outlier. I mean, I guess I wasn't in the beginning, but I discovered that I was as time went along. And the result of that was that being completely unwilling to sacrifice the relationships of the people that I love, I was always willing to hear what people thought and what people said. And the result of that was epiphany after epiphany. You know, when you have a love relationship with somebody... Who you think is good and smart and moral and ethical and and who, whom you respect a lot, then they're going to say things and you're going to take that point of view quite seriously. And and that's happened to me a whole bunch of times. I remember you know in a, in, in you know having supper and and somebody in my wife's family, um, and they really disagree with me and my wife politically, and they're they're you know hard red and they're in Spain and and yeah. And I was talking about the power of the free enterprise system to lift people up the margins of society and talking kind of theoretically about capitalism. And somebody said, "Well, yeah, well, I just read a newspaper article about, you know, a woman who lives with her little girl in a car. You know, what is your capitalism doing for her? Mm. And And I thought, you know, <laughs> that's right. Um, that's right, and, and what I'm doing is I'm talking theory, and it's 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 not it's not good enough. When they're, I mean, I, I realize that the, the the free enterprise system, I really do believe the free enterprise system has pulled two billion of my brothers and sisters out of poverty, and since I was a kid, and and, and I love that, and and I, that's why I'm in the movement in the first place. But unless I have stories, unless I have actual faces in front of me, that was a big epiphany to me that I was like. I, I, I threw off my chains as a PhD social scientist at that moment. <laughs> I said, "I got it. I got man. I got to get out of the house." Hmm. And and since then, I've done what, what that has done for me is it's pretty interesting. You know, when, when Pope Francis was uh, touring the United States, the East Coast of the United States in 2013, he gave this um, this homily to the American bishops at St. Matthew's Cathedral here in Washington D.C. And in this homily, he gave them this advice. He said, "You know, the bishops that he said, you bishops." You have to remember that the shepherd needs to smell like the sheep.
1: <laughs> that's
2: uh, I thought, yeah, that's good advice because, you know, as a Catholic, I, think, I feel like the bishops are kind of out of touch and they treat us kind of like ATM machines mm. and, 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 all, and it was kind of gave me some satisfaction. But then I thought about it. I said, oh, yeah, you know, the Holy Father is talking to me because I'm a bishop. I'm the president of a think tank. I'm in a leadership position. All of us are, whether it's in our families or our communities or our workplace. Do we smell like the sheep? Do we have the stories? Do we have the faces? And, and I'm telling you, I mean, I have my in my office now. I have pictures of the people I'm fighting for, which are people with less power than me. And, you know, this that was hugely important to me. If I had not been open to that because of the relationship I have with people who disagree with me, well, I would have missed all that value. Mm.
0: And I think that's that's wonderful about the workshops, too, is that people get to put a face to a position that they might otherwise not, and and hear people articulate in their own words their lived experiences and stories that have informed their political beliefs, and suddenly right. becomes a lot harder to dehumanize them. So, for sure. so,
2: oh yeah, for sure, that's absolutely right. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that social media is so can be so devastating for relationships when people dehumanize themselves, right? But by, by, by very separated from their from their human relationships or or god forbid even working anonymously um that all sorts of 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 terrible you know depredations can occur
0: yeah and it's interesting to think about sort of the interplay of our political discourse and americans mental health i'm sure there will be some studies to come on that that are pretty impactful So as we think about changing norms around political discourse, how do you think about that in the context of the 2020 election, the context of President Trump, sort of in the context of all these headwinds that are so stiff? What do you think both strategically, morally, philosophically, and tactically we can do as leaders in this movement?
2: So I've given that a lot of thought, as you can imagine. And um, my thinking has really changed on this, actually. So- (laughs) As a guy who, you know, writes books and does idea work at a big think tank for a living, and I'm an academic fundamentally, I tend to think about institutions. You know, the question you was asked is kind of an institutional question. How can we change our political process? How can large groups of people change their philosophy? How can we get better leaders? That sort of thing. And that's how I've always thought. And reflecting on this, I've been failing, you know, just failing and it 's not because it 's going to fail forever, but I think I was thinking i 'm going about this in the wrong way, so I went back to as we were talking a minute ago to how Dr. Martin Luther King was thinking, and he had a huge institutional approach. I mean he was very much behind the the efforts of the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice to break up negative social capital in racist parts, particularly the American South. Mm. I mean, of these networks, but that wasn't fundamentally his message. His message was one of a call of personal revolution. Mm. That's where the strength was. And so I think, I I don't know what the timeline is on this, but the reason that I've actually written for the first time in my life, what amounts to a self-improvement book about love I mean this is a how this book is a how to guide. I mean if you agree with me that we have a culture of contempt, a bunch of institutional problems, that you're not persuading anybody, because you're you're part of the 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 problem of outrage in our country, that you're not happy. Because I've got the data showing that the more you treat people with contempt, and the more you're treated with contempt, the less happy you'll be, as well as lonely, depressed, and anxious. Mm -hmm. And 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 the more disunity you're seeing in our country, unless you like that, then you need to change you. And and again, I I can't change the whole country, but I can change Arthur Brooks. Right. And dedicated to doing. So what? Here's the sort of here's the bargain. I don't know what's going to affect 2020. I mean, I have a whole bunch of things I'm trying to do, and so are you. with better angels. But I do know that Arthur Brooks is going to be better in 2020 than in 2016, and as such, I'm going to be more persuasive. I'm going to be happier, and a social movement, albeit a small one, is going to be emanating out of my heart.
1: Mm, yeah, yeah. You know, I um, it's it's a funny thing. We were talking to, I guess it was about last year or so, but we were talking to Sally Cohn, uh, who was talking to us about the importance of. Emotional intelligence and being able to connect with people, uh, you know, differing points of view. And as an example of that, she referenced her friendship with Andrew Breitbart, founder right. of Breitbart. And it was Breitbart who said uh, that uh, – uh, said something to the effects of politics is downwind of culture. Mm-hmm. And I do think that that's – I do think that that's true. Uh, we, it, it, we we frequently get this question about, you know, how do you scale up these efforts to sort of change the consciousness of America in the direction at which Better Angels describes and that Arthur Brooks is describing. And I do think that the tools are there because you know part of what you and Kieran just talked about is the importance of putting a human face to the person with whom you have a disagreement and as pernicious as social media can be it also gives us an opportunity to share information and experiences across platforms which you know can connect people thousands of miles away or of completely different philosophical viewpoints in ways that can bring people together and we've got groups not just Better Angels Listen First living room conversations that are creating space for people to have these these person-to-person dialogues uh, that are transformative in their potential, but it's got to start with a with an internal change, right? So, uh, to throw another Martin Luther King Jr. quote at you that you may recognize, uh, I seem to recall saying King saying that what we seek is the beloved community, and to achieve the beloved community, we need not just a material change in our, uh, we need not just a quantitative change in our material condition but a qualitative change in our spiritual condition. And, uh, this is a thought and I wonder if you agree with it. Um, but I think that as nice as it seems to say that, uh, we want to embody love in our politics. Many people look at that as a naive notion and others look at it as a threatening notion. You know, I'm a person who's been around, uh, Republican politics and democratic politics. And, uh, many of us have the experience of having been, you know, uh, not just dismissed, but even attacked for standing up for the integrity of people on the other side within a polarized partisan context. And so Better Angels is something of a, you know, uh, something that strives to be like a beloved community. I mean, people who disagree with folks on the other side, but who also want to see the best in them. And yet it takes some courage to stand on love, doesn't it? Uh,
2: yeah. And so
1: I'm, I'm wondering, in your experience, um, has it always been easy for you as a, as a, you know, as a conservative and a person who I'm sure has relationships with elected officials and media people and activists and so forth? Uh, has it required something of your character To be able to so forthrightly say that there is good in the heart of people on the other side of this conversation, even as you're also working with conservative individuals to pursue uh, maybe partisan policy objectives in which you believe or the sense of generosity of spirit is not quite – it's characterized by the partisanship that we know so well.
2: Yeah, it's a a beautiful question. I appreciate it. Um, To begin with, there's not an incompatibility. Mm. between talking about the good on the other side and trying to pursue your own point of view. On the contrary, if there's good on the other side, you should respect it enough to try to persuade that to persuade the good on the other side to accept your point of view. If you really think your point of view is correct, it also means that you have to, you know, play by the rules mm. and and not to catastrophize everything. <laughs> and <laughs> to say that if I don't get a hundred percent of what I want, I've effectively gotten zero to begin with, that's horrible business. There's nobody who would run a business that would say, if I don't get hundred percent in every single negotiation, um, I I have effectively failed. That's those are businesses that go bankrupt really, really quickly. And yet that's what a a populist polarized political environment effectively does. And so the people who are getting most of the political oxygen in America today on both the democratic and Republican side are people who are basically saying my way or the highway. I was talking about this the other day with a, with a journalist It was really challenging me about this book. You know, I've done a lot of interviews about this book. Miraculously, people have started to read this book, (laughs) and I mean, it always amazes me when somebody reads my books. And uh, and and he was saying, well, you know, you have to understand there are people on the other side who are evil, and it's our we have to call them out. And I said, okay, well, hold on, hold on, man. I mean, we're not talking about somebody trying to. You know, there's nobody firing rockets into your caboots. Or, mm-hmm. or 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 trying to knock down your door and shoot you or kidnap your children. We're talking. I'm talking in this context mm-hmm. in this book about people who are just dis- in disagreement with each other ideologically in the United States. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, what is your objective with these people? These people, and I want to. It's not even worth remembering whether the person who is challenging me was on the right or the left, because I've it, it, heard it on both sides many times. Okay. What is your objective with these people who you think are evil? Is it to go to their house and hurt them while they sleep? So, Well, no. What do you think I am? So, okay. Is it to exile them out of the United States and kick them out? No. Is it to take away their right to vote or put them in jail? No. Well, so what's your objective? The objective is them for them to think differently, is to not think these things, is to not be this way. And I said, so how's that working out for you, man? How's that working out for you with your hate? How many, how many, how many people have you persuaded? How many converts have you got? You're failing. You are failing with this approach. If you actually believe in these things, you have one choice and that's love. Mm. If you believe in these things enough to actually try to persuade people, there is no other way. <laughs> I mean, it's it's profoundly self-interested in its way and practical in its way, but also joyful in its way too, because it turns out that the right is the good. It's like Cicero always said, the right turns out to be, always be to the good. And, and in this case, it's abundantly clear. There's no trade-off. It's a, it's a win-win. And right now, what we're in is an undesirable lose-lose.
0: Yeah, and I think as people's identities become... More inextricably tied to their politics, their political calculus ends up being their emotional calculus as well. Because I know on the left, just having worked in democratic politics, there's sort of this eternal debate between do we need to persuade the persuadables to win those Rust Belt states, or if we just turn out enough of our base, it doesn't really matter. And eventually we're going to get to a place where. You know, the 48 percent of people who vote Republican are simply not going to have a voice, and that's the goal because that's better for us, and that's going to protect the rights of vulnerable populations and lead mm. to social progress. So, I think it's important for people to be able to separate those two things in their mind. If they're playing politics, which they see as a zero-sum game, how are they also approaching that when they talk to people just on a human level?
1: Well, and it's yeah. Ca- for sure. yeah well, I was just going to say it's funny, and actually, I uh, I think we tweeted this out. Uh, uh, from from Better Angels, uh, just the other just just yesterday, but I think the tweet said something to the effect of uh, "Love your neighbors" uh, is the most idealistic possible advice. It is also the most practical possible advice. Although that's probably even more true for the for the title of your book, which is "Love Your Enemies," right? Yeah, uh, that's right. It, it's funny though because frequently I think that, uh, people sharing the type of uh I, I would say political but really just sort of you know social and moral wisdom that you're sharing i think are frequently attacked as being impractical but as you mentioned uh, and you know just you know idealistic or naive but as you mentioned really you know unless our objective is to go to war with each other then we need to think in terms of persuading each other and how can we do that without without human connection
2: hmm. and and it's true now, but but let's just for a second let's talk about the people who do want to go to war with each other. Okay. Um, because that's important to look at, um, very frankly, in my view, when I look at the data from, you know, our friends at common ground, Tim Dixon and his group and common ground, mm outstanding survey research on, on actual American attitudes on these subjects. And they find that 93% of Americans hate how divided we become as a country. And look, Better Angels is the most mainstream organization in America. Hmm, right? <laughs> this is a huge opportunity. I mean, it's like, and when I talk to politicians, they say, can I really do it? I say, you can really do it. You just have to be, I mean, you're, you're going to have to be an entrepreneur <laughs> and you have to be willing to get attacked. But I mean, come on. You're going to so, get attacked yeah, anyway, the top of the night, right? <laughs> and so, but but if ninety three percent of us hate how divided we become as a country, that means seven percent don't hate how divided we become as a country. Hmm. And, and and who who are they? And I, I talk about this a little bit in my book. I call this sort of the outrage industrial complex. Right. There's media. There's politicians. There's people in the entertainment industry, and indeed, there are people on college campuses who are dedicated to fomenting hatred. Why? Because they have an objective of, you know, money, power, fame, satisfaction, clicks, followers, or just getting their jollies from seeing people hating each other. We have to recognize that it's, it's a pathology, but it does exist. It's not a mainstream thing. It's a minoritarian thing, but, but it, within a non hateful way, we got to stand up to that it, unless we have the strength to stand up to it. And by the way, standing up to it on our own side. Because standing up to that on the other side is useless. (laughs) You know, you got it. My father always used to say that the mark of moral courage is not to stand up to people on the other side. That's a good thing to do. I mean, in a free society, you need to do it. But the mark of moral courage is to stand up to people on your own side on behalf of people on the other side, which is one of the things that I admire about Better Angels. Because you find opportunities for people to do it. But when you do that you you have to wind up standing up to people on your own side who are trying to foment hatred and trying to defeat the agenda of persuasion, the agenda of unity, and especially the agenda of love and happiness
1: yeah and that's that's what i was what I was getting at with the point about asking you whether or not your stand in this way had had called upon you to have to Strengthen your character in order to sort of sustain it. Uh, I, I've been in partisan contexts where I've listened to a person, you know, just a very red meat speaker speaking to, a, speaking to a group of Democrats or Republicans. I mean I'm a Republican myself but I'm active on both sides of the aisle at different times in my life uh but more recently as a republican and i've seen people you know just clapping at chants of so, you know, lock her up and uh you know just just the red meat stuff that that gets people riled up uh but then after after the speaker finishes i'll go around introducing myself and telling people i'm with this group called better angels and i'll just dis- i'll describe what it is we do we bring together uh reds and blues or conservatives and liberals we give people get the opportunity to get to know each other as human beings beyond the labels beyond the stigmas and about 80 percent of the time the same people who are just there you know clapping at you know the at that uh you know, there's just the the angriest sounding political stuff will grab my hand and shake it. They'll say, oh, we need that so much right now. You know, thank you for for what you're doing and tell me more. And so it's really not just so much that there's a divide between the 7% of people who are wholly committed to. Uh, conflict and you know the, the the rest of us who to whatever degree are sick of it, but there's some division within ourselves, right? Uh, where you know there's at least seven percent of me, uh, Arthur, that probably you know that wants to clap pretty hard too when I hear uh, you know people uh, uh, you know tease certain so got folks. The devil on your
2: shoulder and the angel in the other. Yeah. So <laughs> how do you deal with that? Yeah. Right. And yeah. look, this is normal. This is human mm-hmm. nature. Um, yeah, I know it's true
1: little, for Kieran, by the way. He and I, we have to spar sometimes a little bit. Indeed, uh, but that's all good. I
2: mean, that's right. the point. Uh, but you guys are buddies, and mm-hmm. and and that's more important yeah. than than the, than political differences because love always trumps policy. I've been doing a lot of research lately on how the biggest problems that we have in life will never be solved by policy and politics, and can mm-hmm. only be solved by love. Uh, and right. as such, unless we have a, a robust agenda for getting more love, and now, like, I mean, I'm sounding like some like. Berkeley, circa 1968. Here, and you know, this is from you know the president of the American Enterprise Institute. But man, (laughs) I got the data, and my cause is just. Yeah. So, Mm, so I love that. True, people get fired up, man. It is true. People get really, really fired up. But that is not the only thing that they want. Mm. And what we need to do, what the the real opportunity is, when you see a 93 percent number like we get from Common Ground that we hate how, how divided we become as a country, Then we need to use that as an entrepreneurial impulse to, and not just to create institutions, but to be, to have an apo- a personal apostolate mm. to, to reach out to other people and to use our own lives uh, magnetically. I got to tell you, I I am so happy, so much happier. I mean, I, it's because, it's you know, I'm, I'm you know, I've been guilty. And, and, and not just... Not so much as president of the American Enterprise Institute, but in my own life, I got strong political opinions. And I saw a, a clip of myself on television in debating some lady about something, and I, I rolled my eyes when she said something. And I thought, looking back on that in the context mm-hmm. of this research, she did not go home and say, you know, I was debating the president of the American Enterprise Institute, and he was making some very good points. <laughs> right. <laughs> she went home and said, that guy was a jerk. And probably every time she's seen me on television since then, she said, there's that jerk. Well, that was a a missed opportunity, and it was a missed moment of grace Mm. for me. I'm I'm just, you know, I am always prone to doing the wrong thing, but I'm not going to let those opportunities pass me by anymore because life is short.
0: Yeah, and I think in terms of engaging that 7%, what I found oftentimes is the most effective way to change people's behavior is social pressure. So if you look at the Me Too movement, for example, ultimately the norms around what's acceptable in terms of um, sexual harassment and sexual assault have changed very quickly. And in an accompanying fashion, you're seeing behavior change. But I think a lot of that is due to social pressure. It's due, you know, in some side, you know, talking to your own side and saying, you know, that's not cool, man. But it's also social pressure. If People know that, you know, they're going to get heat if they don't obey these new norms. So how does that play into the polarization space as we think about renorming, essentially.
2: I love that. You know, it's, it's funny. It, um, I was reflecting on why I love my organization, AEI. Um, I agree with the fundamental philosophy that flies around this place. It's just stuff I, I, I really like, but what I really love is that it's a culture that's, that's supportive and where people are kind to each other and where we have a lot of disagreement, but it's all good. Right. (laughs) That's what we value about it. And, you know, you can get a culture of that. There's an organization that I really admire a lot. I'm not involved with them, but I admire them a lot. They're called, you know, it's the intelligence squared debates, the IQ squared debates. And what I really admire is that they, they run these debates and people come in really just hammering tongs, even as spectators on one side or the other and, and something like 40% change their minds. And there's this culture, this joyful, almost a ebullient culture inside these events because people change their minds. It's like, oh, you change your mind. Me too. It becomes cool to change your <laughs> yeah, mind. It, it be becomes intoxicating. cool. There's so much joy that comes even more from, I mean, being persuasive is fun. I mean, I try to do that for a living. I, I, I go blah, blah, blah. I give 175 speeches a year, right? That's my gig. But you know what brings actual happiness into your heart is really realizing that you are persuadable. I mean, it just, why is that? It's because, because we want to be humble. You know, pride doesn't give you happiness. Humility gives you happiness. You know, the, the heavenly virtue of humility gives you happiness and the, the deadly sin of, of vice, the deadly vice of, of, of pride doesn't. These are just, I mean, this, you don't have to be a theologian. You just have to walk the face of the earth to figure that out. So to the extent that we can have a culture where we have an expectation that people are going to be happy by being more humble, by being more persuadable, by listening to others. And, and you can get that. I mean, it's hard to get in a country of 330 million people, but you can get it in your, at your Thanksgiving table. You can get it in your company. And maybe we can get some more of that in America. I, hope better, I think better angels can be a big part of that.
1: Well, it sounds like you're trying to turn us all into a bunch of flip-floppers there, Mr. Brooks.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Flip it. <laughs> or a bunch of Buddhists, which I fully subscribe to.
2: <laughs>
1: don't, don't get Arthur in yeah. trouble. He's already a vegan. So, you know, he's uh, – <laughs> yeah.
2: And also I have you know a lot of these ideas, by the way. It's, it's not coincidental. I have a, I have a close uh, relationship with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and he shows up a lot in my work. I've, I've written with him and worked with him for seven years. And uh, and he's a lot in this book for the things that he's taught me. Uh, you know, he he. When I asked him, I said, "Your Holiness, what should I do when I feel contempt?" Because ordinarily, when somebody treats you with contempt, that's a stimulus that leads to a response of contempt. That's how the cycle uh, 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 perpetuates itself. And he said, "Stop and practice warm heartedness." In other words, and I said, well, what if I don't feel warm-hearted? And he told me to fake it, right? (laughs) And it's because action follows attitude, not vice versa. And he told me to think of a time when I actually answered hate with love and how it set my heart on fire. And that's one of the stories that I tell in the book about how I went back and thought of a time when I inadvertently answered, in a moment of grace, when I inadvertently answered hate with love and how it just, it, it, it really lit me up. And it was great. And, that, and I remember that now. And it's been really helpful to me.
0: That makes me think of the Buddhist practice of Vipassana. And I did a, a meditation retreat in Burma. And one of the ideas is that you sort of begin by clearing away your mind and, and creating space so that you can observe emotions rather than, um, you know, being a slave to them and react them. And then there's the the practice of metta, which is once you have that space, you purposefully seek to fill it with compassion And you begin by thinking of people you love, your mother, your partner, and then over time you begin by thinking of someone you don't really know very well, and then eventually you advance to where you are thinking of your enemies purposefully, or your opponents, and feeling compassion. So, I think there's a lot of interplay there with, uh... Yeah,
2: there's nothing new under the sun, is there? I mean, you're talking about um, fundamental practices of Theravada Buddhism, and, um... And, and what John and I were quoting was Dr. Martin Luther King and, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian mm. and, uh, and I, I, the title of my book comes from Matthew 544. The really funny thing you guys is that, you know, I'm doing a lot of these events because I'm on book tour these days and I go to, you know, extremely super secular environments on campuses and all that. People will be like, love your enemies that 's a clever title <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah i didn 't make that up
1: <laughs> that 's funny well you know i wasn't always uh, i wasn 't always a Christian, I do call myself a christian uh, today, but uh, when I met the woman who would become my wife back when I was also still a Democrat and doing uh, campaign fundraising at a call center and In Hollywood, we had this – I was actually a bit of an anti-Christian individual in as much as – I didn't hate Christians, but I felt like I hated the Bible and wasn't super familiar with it at the same time. And so I told uh, I told her at the time, Triana. I said uh, I said, if God is real, he can't be about rules and dogma. If he's real, he's got to be about love and positive energy and good and, and good fe- good feelings and enlightenment, etc., etc., et cetera, et cetera. And she said, That's right. For though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging symbol. And on and on, of course, uh, quoting uh, uh, quoting First Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter thirteen. And when mm-hmm. she finished uh, by saying, if I have not love, it profits me nothing. I listened to her and I said, God, that's beautiful. Did you write that?
2: And <laughs> uh, <laughs> the most single, most, you know, it's like quoted at every wedding. <laughs> right. But that's just
1: how removed I was from the kind of, you know, spiritual and values-based edifice yeah. of Christianity. But, but that's instructive though because one thing I notice is that, you know, whether you're not, you're talking about evangelical. Uh, Christian conservatism on the right, uh, or social progressivism, you know rooted in appreciation of you know the the, the, the legacy of of Martin Luther King Jr., or just this broader embrace of human tolerance and diversity. Um, love is the core value on each side. And it seems to me as if the project is really just sort of to translate this across all of the different layers of culture and ideological difference that exists between us.
0: And the languages as well.
1: Right. Um, sure. And so, you know, it seems like, you know, we, we get to this point in our current polarized context of thinking that the other side is irredeemable and we think that they're irredeemable because we've allowed ourselves to believe or you know circumstances have conspired to lead us to believe that they are genuinely acting from a place of malevolent intent but you know but nine out of ten times it it it's it seems to me that we we have very similar feelings at the roots of what we believe and those feelings wind up growing through different experiences which cause us to see the world a different way. But love, as the Bible says, uh, as Paul says, is long suffering. And it mm-hmm. seems, Mr. Brooks, like if we're going to love each other in the way you're describing, we have to be willing to kind of absorb a little bit of pain, right? In order to, to take the Twitter insults, right? To to take the you know, to take the attacks and so forth. Uh, on us as being you know whatever mealy mouthed or sellouts or you know closet liberals or closet conservatives depending on what stings you most right (laughs) or whatever the rest of it may be it seems like we've got to be willing to patiently bear with a lot of a lot of anger if we're going to get this love thing across in politics
2: sure and you know speaking to that again we're not none of the three of us is minimizing the policy and political differences that exist between Mm -hmm. people because to minimize it would be to denigrate the reality of the varieties of ideological experience that we have, Mm -hmm. which is good, you know, and and we should adjudicate these things, but, but the point that you're making and the broader point that you're making is very profound that, that there is pain involved in standing up for love. There is what you have to defeat. You know, this is a, this is a, both a Buddhist and a Christian concept, as well as every religion, that the fundamental negative emotion is not hatred, it's fear. Right. Uh, the fundamental positive emotion is love. And so therefore, fear and love are opposites. This is a, uh, this is a truth that's lost on people a lot. Hatred is downstream from fear. And so what we need to be, if, if you want more love, if you want more reconciliation, if you want more unity, and just practically speaking, if you want to be more persuasive, you have to work for love, but that means you have to defeat fear. And it starts with defeating fear in yourself. I mean, it's funny. You know, I talk to young people all the time on campuses and people in the 20s. And one of the things that I see in my data that are most alarming is that the people in the 20s, millennials, are really fearful. I mean, you see higher levels of social anxiety than you've seen. And, and higher levels of fear-based behavior than you've seen in, in, in many generations since we've been keeping records. Or, you know, people in the twenties today are thirty percentage points less likely to date than people were there when they were in twenty. And, and when I was in my twenties, they're less likely to be in love. They're less likely to be in couples. They're less likely to 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 get married. There, th- and that comes from fear. That comes from a social anxiety. And you know, fear. Is the opposite of love, but love, according to Saint John the Apostle, John, as you know well, mm. love drives out fear, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> and so therefore, if you can, the way that you defeat fear—the fear of being rejected, the fear of being criticized, the fear of being called a sellout or a mealy mouth—it is nothing more than just pouring more love on top of it,
0: mm-hmm. right? It,
2: right? Isn't and this, it, it, I don't know, Kieran, is that your experience too?
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I think sometimes for people it's sort of a nebulous and theoretical. Uh, concept. So I, I wonder with your emphasis on practicality, if you were talking to a millennial who said, well, Arthur, what, you know, what are three things I can do today, next week, this month to overcome fear and choose love? Mm. I want to do it, but I don't know how to do it. And every time I try, I just end up going back on Twitter, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Mm. Yeah. So, so I'll give them what I, the most practical answer. And it's one that's really on my heart right now. Um, so there's this, this paper that I read last year. It was by Steve Levitt, who's an economist at the University of Chicago. He he wrote Freakonomics, so he's a really famous guy. But he's also one of the greatest ge- economists of his generation uh, because he asks the most interesting questions. And he, he wrote this paper about how people make hard decisions when they're afraid mm. in their lives. And, and at any particular time, something like a third of the population is, is in agony over a major life decision, whether it's a romantic decision or a health decision or a career decision or an education decision, you know, whatever, where, where to say yes to a, to, to a decision is scary. And to say no is sort of the status quo. It's not scary, but you don't know which is right, and so you're paralyzed. Right. So what he says is, you know, he says, I know that a lot of people are, are struggling. So he puts out an advertisement to see it, how many people will let him make the decision for them with a, with a flip of a coin, if you can believe it. Mm-hmm. And, and 26,000 people signed up for his experiment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, it's. I mean, God bless America, right? It's like, <laughs> I, I can't decide to ask my girlfriend to marry me. So I'm going to let a, 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 an economist <laughs> at the University of Chicago make the decision with a flip of a quarter. It's insane. <laughs> and, and
1: That's an act so of he, faith, uh, I'd say.
2: What's the, oh, so he 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 goes through and he flips the coin. He doesn't actually as a computer flip the coin, sends back the decision. But the genius of the experiment is that he asks before and after the experiment, how happy are you with your life? Where one is misery and ten is bliss. And, and he finds that a year after the experiment, that the that the yeses and this is like a drug treatment. It's a drug experiment with treatment control. It's random assignment. That he says that the the yeses are an entire digit happier than. Does, mm. which is statistically enormously significant. And what that suggests to us is that we say no too much. We need to say yes too much. We need to take more risk. Now, why do I say this? Why do I describe this to you? Because um, some, some, a couple of years ago, when or a year or so ago, when I first read this and it was really kind of blowing my mind, I was talking to this group of people in the twenties and, and I, I was a speech for a big group of people in the twenties. I told them about this assignment. I said, look, you need to take more risk. Don't come at me with, I'm an entrepreneur. I can do a startup company and get venture capital. That's boring. That is not true risk. True risk, if you're a real entrepreneur, is with your heart because love is your ultimate capital that you're going to put at risk. If you can't fall in love, you're not an entrepreneur. I'm I'm like super hardcore, right? So, and this, I a kid, he's not a kid. He's in his 20s. He comes, I'm old, like I'm 54 years old. So everybody's a kid to me. Anyway, so he comes up to me Two weeks later, I'm on an airplane, serendipitously. And he says, are you Professor Brooks? And I said, yeah. He said, I saw that speech you gave on the startup life and the entrepreneurial romantic heart, or whatever I was calling it. And he said, and I can't get it out of my head, so I'm on my way to tell this girl that I'm in love with for two years I've never told her I'm going to tell her I want to spend the rest of my life with her. Oh, wow. And I'm like, dude, it was only a speech. Did you ever, so- you ever hear back from him? Yeah, yeah. So this is the interesting thing. So three months later, I run into him again in Washington, D.C. and I say, how'd it go? And he says, she shot me down. And I was very contrite, as you can imagine. I said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to give you bad advice. And he says, no, 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 you don't understand. I meant to send you an email to thank you because I was was so scared. Mm. And then I did it and the worst thing happened and I didn't die. And I'm not afraid anymore. Mm. I'm not afraid anymore. So, I mean, this is the thing about fear and love, isn't it? You got to go for it. And, and one of the things that I, the pieces of advice that I give to millennials is, is it's, it's, it's not just on social media where you're worried about being a social outcast, like put your heart out there. If you're not, you'll never be a true entrepreneur and the world needs you to do that.
0: Mm.
1: You know, this is a, this is a remarkably um, sort of, uh, non or at least extra political conversation uh, we are having with the you know President of the American Enterprise Institute here, and uh, it 's funny because you know you said earlier in this conversation about uh, how there is all of this research showing that the most important problems we have uh, as people and I guess as Americans are never going to be solved by politics and policy. So we're here talking to you in this political context. I mean, you know, me and Kieran and the community at Better Angels, I mean, we're, we're, we're dealing with this problem of political polarization. But it's kind of clear to me now that, like, this is just sort of reflective of a larger cancer of distrust in our society. So it makes sense that you are here talking about the whole person in some sense in terms of how how we need to heal our politics. Because we could just as easily be sitting here Talking about fiscal policy, talking about health care and foreign policy, and all of these things are important, but it just seems like we've taken it for granted that if you've got the right answer uh, to the policy question on the test that you know however it is, whatever you got to do to make sure the side that's got to you know vote the right way in Congress or make the right executive order. You know, however it is, you've got to see to it that your side wins. Everything else will sort of take care of itself from there. So, Mm -hmm. do you think that, are you optimistic that we might be able to sort of turn a corner to sort of, you know, reset our priorities in this country to where we come to realize that as important as these intellectual conversations are about political policy, it is more important for us, even in politics, to remember that it's the larger moral character of the human being that matters, particularly in the domain of how we treat each other uh, in 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 the most contentious conversations and most important conversations that we have.
2: Hmm, hmm. Uh, hmm. I am you know there's a big difference between hope and optimism. hmm Right. And you know optimism is it's gonna be okay. Hope is <laughs> <clears throat> something can be done and I can do it. Right. I I am I'm not not optimistic. I just don't know. But I am incredibly hopeful mm. because I'm empowered. Right. I feel so powerful mm. uh, because I've I've I feel like I've conquered Arthur Brooks's heart. Mm. You know, it's the funniest thing. I mean, it's you can't it's hard to describe. You know, if look, if it, uh, maybe I'm not the hardest case to to crack. But we all are kind of hard, and, and I feel like I've found the way through. And I also find cases of incredible progress throughout history. You know, we go back to the civil rights movement in the United States, and it looked like it was a, it was basically a policy fight. You know, against you know the the legacy of Jim Crow laws, against uh, sy- uh, systematic discrimination through through public policies, um, but it wasn't, it was interior revolution. And, and it, at the end of the day, you know, when many of the laws had been passed and it, it was apparent uh, victory for public policy, uh, at the, that was when, when Martin Luther King was assassinated, still he had only 33% public support. Yeah. <laughs> and yet today he has 95% public support. That has been an, an incredible revolution of the American heart. That was the ultimate good that I went to. I, I don't discount the policies because institutional solutions, they matter a lot. and Policies and, and laws, thank God. Mm-hmm. But really, my life is better and my country is better and it's easier for my kids to grow up. And, and, and we've attained moral good because of what Martin Luther King did, um, not in public policy, but in 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 public culture. Mm. so and I think that can be done it has been done in the past it's been done a whole bunch of times that's just one example of when that's been done in the past and uh I think that you know there would be no market for better angels there would be no market for what we talked about a minute ago which is intelligence squared there would be no market for my book i mean like it's the craziest thing. You write a book called Love Your Enemies. You don't call it, you know, Republicans are stupid or Democrats are <laughs> evil, which would be <laughs> mega bestsellers. Right. <laughs> right. But the book's on the bestseller list. How did that happen? It happened not because it's so beautifully written. It's because people are like, I want some of that. That gives me hope.
0: Yeah, no, the appetite is certainly there. Um, well, shifting gears just a little bit to politics, I wonder which of our political leaders right now do you feel most embody some of the values we're
2: talking about here today.
1: Oh, that's putting him on the spot.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's <no>, okay. <laughs> I had to do it. it. It's okay, you know the, the the political leaders that I like most, that I find most encouraging today, are not bound up in the reality show, which mm-hmm. is to say, the federal government, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, the people are. There's a there's an overemphasis on federal politics today. There's there's you know people always talk about. You know, national. There's too much of you know national par- national power. You know, DC, um, but there's too much national attention on DC too. Definitely, and because we can see everything. And so it's the funniest thing. You know, I was in Seattle talking to somebody I really love. Seattle's my hometown, and um, uh, you know, the most maybe the most progressive place in the United States. And you know, this person was super wrapped around the axle about the election of Donald Trump in November 16. And and I said. Well, do you know who won the school board election locally on the same day? It's like, no. Well, that really matters a lot for this community. And so the under emphasis on what's actually going on around, around us, I realize that the school board election is way more boring than, than Clinton versus Trump. I, I, I get it because I, you know, I, <laughs> I thought that that was a pretty entertaining election too. But it's very important for us to realize that the heroes, you know, the people who are are actually working in the in the honest-to-goodness realm of reconciliation are the ones that are are upstream from what we're going to see nationally, at least I hope, and, and if my efforts and yours are ultimately successful. And that's a lot of the people that I see in the state and local government. I see, you know, mayors and I see governors and I see people at the county level and they just, they can't afford to be, you know, bitterly divided on the basis of partisan rancor. You know, I work a lot with this guy, uh with Doug Ducey, who's the governor of, of Arizona. And I was having lunch with him, and I said, Doug, how many? Because I have this I'm an intense interest in criminal justice reform and and reentry and getting people to work and have purpose and reconnect with their families when they get out of prison, because it's a catastrophe what's going on in this country. And and I said, Doug, how many prisoners do you have in state prisoners in the state of Arizona? And he said forty three thousand six hundred eleven. I'm like, man that's what i want i want i want governors who know that number and who want to find some way to not see them as liabilities but as assets in the human family and, and- and they want to lift people up. And the only way that Doug Ducey can do that, I mean, he's like, like he's a, he's like, you know, more conservative than me and John combined. <laughs> he's, he's a rock-ribbed conservative, but he, he will work with anybody on behalf of people who have less power, who are at the periphery of society. And I see tons of people like that out there. You know, people who are so depressed about partisan divides. I, I get it. You know, I live in DC. I'm in the circus, but there's a lot of good going on in this country.
1: Yeah, I, I do believe that. And I, I appreciate your dis- the distinction that you draw between uh, hope and optimism. And, uh, yeah, there's meaningful substance uh, in the way that you illustrated that. And I agree, and Karen, I think you would agree too. I mean, we, we do feel empowered, you know, um, even in our relatively small corner of the conversation. Uh, every day we hear from people who share with us how it is – That, you know, what we do and more broadly uh, the things that Better Angels does and our volunteers, our moderators in local communities and states across this country, uh, people organizing workshops and connecting across the lines of division. We hear from people every day about how meaningful and how transformative uh, this, uh, you know, this this activity is. And so, you know, it, it certainly leaves me feeling hopeful, but perhaps because I'm hopeful, I am also optimistic. Uh, that, that love will revitalize civil society, if you will, you know? Mm. Um, for
2: sure. And, you know, the one thing, one of the things that I talk, I talk a lot in the book about, about that. I actually think you're right. (laughs) I agree with you. Um, but one of the things that we can say that's more than hopeful and it's even more than optimistic is that every person listening to us who does this will be more persuasive, will be happier and will create more unity. 100% One hundred percent money back guarantee. <laughs> I mean, I can't make that guarantee because Barnes and Noble takes your money. But, 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 but I know this. This is a fact, and so we can go one better. Everybody wants to be happier. Everybody wants to have more love. We have an ironclad formula that we're talking about here, such that each person listening to us can get it.
1: Mm. Amen, Karen. Do you wanna do you wanna sing us out?
0: Yeah, man. This has been a fantastic conversation and one that I think our listeners will really appreciate. And we are hopeful that we can get you at our national convention. Just to remind our listeners, that's going to be in late June, June 20th to 23rd at Washington University in St. Louis. We will be bringing together hundreds of liberal delegates and conservative delegates from across the country to, most importantly, build relationships, but also to shape our national agenda and to grow this citizens movement in the face of some very divisive times in American politics. So... Arthur, thank you so much for coming on. We really enjoyed this and we look forward to keeping in touch.
2: Indeed. Thanks, So I appreciate your heroic work. Um, God bless better angels. And, uh, let's, let's all get in the fight together for something that's good and true.
1: Let's do it. Looking forward. Right on.